And and here's the deal. Um, I'm I'm just gonna lay it all out there right now. Okay, we're talking about some weird stuff today. Okay, so uh, guys, we're talking about circumcision. Get it right? How many of you are like, yeah, right? Yeah. No, but this is what the scriptures have brought to us today. Uh, we're in this Acts series. We've been in this Acts series for a long time. This is actually week seven of our series. And today we're getting into Acts chapter 15, which is all about that big snip, okay? And so, just going to lay it out there. Um, we're not going to skip it. We're going to talk about it. And I know some of you, Don and I, and Emmy, this morning, we're talking about it back by the welcome cart, and in walks uh, Jenny, and I'm like, you are walking in on the worst conversation possible in church, and she just took it to another level of worse, so it was really cool. So hopefully... Hopefully you guys will uh, not kill me or whatever later. Um, but this is the scripture, so we're going to look at it. We're not going to shy away from that kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, we're going to continue in our series today. This is week seven, like I said, of our messenger series. And I see some new faces here, and so I want to just kind of give you a, the concept of where we've been so far. We've been working through the book of Acts. And we started out in an Acts series, and now we're in kind of like a series looking at Paul's life. We're 12, 13, 15 weeks in or so. Um, and so, just really quickly giving you some background as to what has happened so far in the Acts and Messenger series. Basically, Acts starts at the end of Jesus' life here on earth. We know that He came, He lived a perfect example, died a horrible death, was resurrected from the grave, and then gave His disciples the job, the challenge to go and spread the good news with the world around them. Be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the world. The beginning of Acts is kind of like the first parts, the gospel spreading through Judea and Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. And then recently we've got into the outermost parts of the world. Paul was a major player in this series. If you remember in the beginning of Acts, Paul was against Jesus. He was working against the church, doing everything he could to stop the spread of the gospel. And then God says, I'm going to turn that boy. And he turns him around, and he now is working for Jesus and begins to spread the gospel. He and Barnabas go on this missionary journey. We just looked at this over the past few weeks. Paul and Barnabas go on this long missionary journey, visiting all these churches, and the gospel is now open to the Gentiles. Well, now that you've got Gentiles in a, in a predominantly Jewish culture that are now believing in Jesus, you've got these housekeeping issues. These issues of culturally they were different types of people and they couldn't really get along on some issues. And today the issue is a major, major issue that we're going to look at. And so what we're doing today is kind of looking at the after effects the fallout of all those thousands of people, all those thousands of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus was awesome. It was a huge party. But some guys, I, I, I listened to this uh, kind of, I don't know what it was, a, 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 a message on this topic. And the guy said it was like as if you're at a pool party and everyone's having a great time and they're all celebrating and then some kid you know, poops in the pool, and the party's over, right? It is over, everything was great, it was all fun, and then, you know, party's over. This is what happened in this story today, and so we're going to look at it. Picking up right from the last time we met, we looked at 
Acts chapter 14. We're going to go right into Acts chapter 15. And this, if, if you've got one of those Bibles, that heading or whatever, this will say the council at Jerusalem. They're not at Jerusalem yet, okay? So they're partying, they're having a great time. The, the, the church has, remember, the church has sent Paul and Barnabas on mission. They, they get all of these new churches designed and organized and people are being saved and they come back and they share all the good news and it's just a huge party. But, verse 1 says this, it says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this was, listen, first of all, guys, I mean, you know, these, we're talking, these are talking to adult men. You start talking about the C word, they're going to go crazy, okay? This is not something they wanted to hear, and rightfully so, okay? So, verse 2, And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren de- determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So some men, some Pharisees, some Jewish believing Christians come in and say, listen, unless you get cut, you ain't saved. That's what they say. And everyone's like, oh, hold on, bro. No, that ain't how it's supposed to be. So what we're going to do is we're going to go find out from the boss, okay, the guys up in Jerusalem, the, the fathers of the church, the apostles, we're going to go find out from them. Let's send Paul and Barnabas to go talk to them and find out what happens, okay? Now, you can't really blame Paul and Barnabas for having dissension, okay? You can't blame them at all because this is a huge, huge ask, okay? This is, I mean, women, not so much for you, but for men, this is a huge ask, right? This is crazyville, and so it's stressful. Look at what it says, this Paul and Barnabas had great dissension. Now, Paul and Barnabas themselves weren't worried about this, because these guys were Jewish. This had already happened to them when they were eight days old. Uh, a good Jewish family would circumcise their boy on the eighth day, just like many of you do when they're babies. You don't remember it. It's not a big deal. It just happens. But th- so Paul and Barnabas, this was, not a, this was not a problem for them. But what came with the circumcision was the problem. Hundreds and thousands of other laws that they would have to obey that came with this. And so there was a great great debate and there was serious beef between these men and the rest of the church in Antioch. Remember, they're in Antioch. They're down in a predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish area here with lots of non-Jews who'd come to Jesus and Paul and Barnabas been preaching that you are saved by grace alone, by faith alone and all of a sudden these guys come up and say, nope, you got to get cut. And they're like, no. So what do they do? They send some people. Verse 3, Therefore, Being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. This is a party. This is like a tour. This is one of those tours where your team wins the Super Bowl or the World Series, and there's a parade for them right in the city. That's what this was. They're cheering, yes, the Gentiles have been saved. It's awesome. But when they arrived at Jerusalem... They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. So Paul and Barnabas are telling them, listen, the Gentiles have been saved. Thousands of people have come to faith in Jesus. It's a big, it's a big old party. And then comes 
you know, the turd that gets lobbed in the punch bowl. Here it comes. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, this was by far the party killer right here. Okay? Oh, great. And then these guys stand up and say, we've got to cut them, and they need to start obeying the law of Moses. So God's doing all these great things, and then hush. Right? Look at what it says there. It says it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, that first word, circumcise, I mean, the guys are already going to cringe, already going, no way, it's not going to happen, I can't do it, there's no way, no way. But that's not the worst of it. That is, as, as horrible as that would be, guys, that is not the worst of the situation. The worst of the situation is to have to obey the laws of Moses. Now, what are the laws of Moses? How many laws of Moses do you know? We know how many? Ten commandments, okay. The Pharisees were talking about hundreds and thousands of other laws that they had interpreted based off of those ten commandments. So they're talking about, listen, this is a jealous response. Have you ever had something going great in your life and everything's great, right? Everything's great. It's going good. God's blessing it. And then someone who's jealous comes and tries to ruin it. This is what's happening. This is solely based out of jealousy. These Jewish Pharisees have lost control. Because how it used to be is you used to know you were saved. You used to know you were okay. You used to know that you were right with God if you were doing all the stuff that they said you ought to do, and you were obeying all these things, and you went to them, and you offered to them, and you did all these things, and now, they were no longer necessary. So they're jealous. They've lost control. They're losing their income. They're losing all of this stuff. And so they say, no, you can't be saved unless you obey these laws that we're in control of, that we're in charge of. And so... This thing happens, and they say, you need to obey these laws. Now, why do we get from ten to thousands? How do you get from ten to thousands of laws? That's the question. I mean, God didn't write thousands and thousands and thousands of laws. Just take, for instance, you guys know the Ten Commandments. You know, you, know, you shall know the gods before me. Don't uh, worship idols. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't uh, commit adultery. All those ones. Take, for instance, keep the Sabbath holy. Okay, let's just talk about this for a minute. Sabbath was Saturday. It was a holy day. It was like our, we, we celebrate Sabbath on Sunday. Okay? So, the Pharisees would say that the law says, God's law says, to keep the Sabbath holy. What that means is there's a lot of stuff that you can do and cannot do on the Sabbath. And so they said, you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. Well, that's pretty clear, right? You just don't work on the Sabbath. What does it mean to work? So they had 39 different descriptions for the word work. What does it mean to work? Well, one, one thing to work means to walk. And so under that 
form of work, walking, because walking is a form of work, I guess. You're working off calories. Then they had another 39 subcategories under how far and what you could walk and what kind of sandals you could wear when you walk and all of these things. Remember, we talked about this in the series. That they would, they would walk only a certain amount and then they would have to set up a temporary home so they wouldn't be too far away from home. Do you remember? And so, the, this is one of those things. And so, uh, they can't work. You, you're not allowed to write a certain amount of letters on the Sabbath because it's too much work. And the Pharisees controlled the people with all of these laws and sub-laws and sub-laws and sub-laws, thousands and thousands and thousands of laws that man was never designed to have to watch out for to obey all of those little sub-laws, sub-laws, sub-laws Thousands and thousands and thousands of little things that were designed to control you. And this is what their aim was to control the people. To stay in control. As you look at these laws, you think about all of the things that it uh, included and didn't include. I mean, the reality is, is that God's law, think about this for a second. God's law from the very beginning was designed to show you that you can't do it on your own anyway. This was the whole point of God's law, that you cannot do this on your own. It was pointing to a Savior who had to do it for you. God's law was about showing you that you were imperfect, that you could not keep up all these laws, that you could not do those things on your own, but there was coming a man, a God-man that could do all those things for you and in your place. The law was aimed at Jesus. It was aimed at showing us our need of a Savior. And they had it so twisted. That was the complete opposite point of it. And so Paul and Barnabas and the church have heartburn with this, of course. They've got heartburn. And so they send them up to Jerusalem to try to fix this. Because Paul and Barnabas have been preaching that you are saved by grace alone. They've been preaching that, preaching that, preaching that. Thousands of people coming to faith because of their gift of grace that's been offered them. And now these guys are trying to ruin us. Continue. Verse 6. The apostles, the apostles and the other elders came together to look into this matter. So they got to Jerusalem. Okay? They're now with the apostles and they begin to look at it. Verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter, first time we heard about him in a while, okay, he's been out of the picture, up in Jerusalem, because most of the action has now been in Antioch and surrounding areas. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's saying, hey, remember that thing with Cornelius? And if you want to look it up, that's Acts chapter 10. We already talked about that. Cornelius, a Roman official, totally non-Jewish dude, becomes a believer and the Holy Spirit falls on him and his family and, his, and the people in his home just like it had done at Pentecost on these Jewish guys. He's like, listen, God opened up the door to the Gentiles. I was there. I was right there. And they hadn't obeyed any laws. They hadn't done any of those things and God sent His Spirit on them. So look at what he says. He continues. And so God, and God, verse 8, and God who knows the heart testified to them giving them the Holy Spirit just as He also did to us. So he's saying, listen, 
God gave the Holy Spirit to them just like He did to us. I was there. I saw it happen. Literally, the Spirit fell on them. And He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Now, parents, there's a math equation that I want you to think about. I know a lot of us, we learned math in school. I really believe the only reason they teach us math in school is because our kids are going to learn it in school and that's the only reason we need it. This is a math equation, okay, that Peter and Paul and Barnabas and eventually here James here in a second, this is what they're coming to, this math equation, that salvation equals grace plus nothing. Okay? Does that make sense to you? Some of you are like, I don't know math. You don't need to know math. Look, Listen, salvation is simply a gift of grace from the Father above. There is nothing else that you can do to earn it. You don't have to be snipped. You don't have to be not snipped. You don't have to do this or that or whatever. Listen, the more you work at trying to make yourself better, you're just doing work. Because the God of this universe sees who you really are. Now, as you think about it, just think about the Ten Commandments. In your brain, I don't want hands raised. Think about the Ten Commandments. They show us that we are broken and fallen people. And that we are messed up. Listen, you can't work your way to salvation. It's impossible. It is only a gift of grace from the Father above. It's only a gift of grace. And so these men who are coming in and Peter, uh, Peter's saying, listen, the, the, the gospel was shared with these Gentiles who are not followers of the laws of Moses and God sends the Holy Spirit on them. Paul and Barnabas are saying, we've been preaching that, that we are saved by grace alone and thousands of Gentiles are coming to faith. And then these guys show up and say, no, you're not really saved unless you get cut and you obey these laws. They were full of it, is what they were. And this is the continuation of that conversation. As you think about it, if you've ever memorized the Scripture, we talked about this Sunday, about doing some Bible memorization. Um, this is a great verse to memorize because it is the equation of salvation equals grace plus nothing. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you're going to memorize the verse, this is a great verse to memorize. And a lot of you have this one memorized. For by grace... Grace. What is grace? It's unmerited favor, meaning you didn't deserve it, you didn't earn it. To be offered grace is just something that is given to you out of love, not because you're pretty, not because you're smart, not because it's not like an award that you earn. My daughter earned a, a full camp scholarship thing to band camp this summer, which was awesome. But she earned that, right? She went through the interview process. She did all the stuff, the hard work. She earned that. And that was a, a gift that she's been given. But she earned it. Listen, you cannot earn your salvation. So many people think, I've got to get right with God before I can get to church. 
we were talking with people in the neighborhood who were telling me, I'm, just, I'm not really there yet. You know what I mean? Yeah, we know. Like God sees who you are. He sees that you're jacked up, that you're messed up, that you're in pain, that you've got these problems. And He says, I'm here to fix you. Not you fix yourself and then come to Me. He says, come to Me and I'll fix you. Come to Me and I will save you. This is the Gospel, y'all. So Peter gives his two cents. He says, Cornelius didn't obey the law and the Holy Spirit was given to them. Then Paul and Barnabas stand up and they give their two cents. Verse 12 says, All the people kept silent and they were listening to Paul and Barnabas as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So they're giving them practical evidence. Listen, we're, we're seeing miracles happen with the Gentiles. We're seeing people come to faith in the Gentiles. And listen, what Peter's saying is true. We've got you know, a year or two worth of evidence that you don't have to be cut to be saved. So they're giving very practical evidence. Peter's giving from a leadership standpoint evidence that this happened first through him there. And now, James, the half-brother of Jesus. Remember, we did that series in James here a few years ago. This is the guy. Okay, This was Jesus' half-brother. Who Remember, in the, in the Gospels, James doesn't believe that his half-brother Jesus is the Messiah. He's like, dude, you're crazy, right? And then he raises from the dead and he's like, oops, my bad, right? He's like, whoa, old boy's raising from the grave. He actually is who he says he was. And somehow he's become the leader of authority here in the church in Jerusalem. So as James stands up and gives his two cents on the subject. Verse 13, just continuing through the chapter. After they had stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, uh, has related how God first concerned Himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for His name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is written. And so what, what James is doing here, he's speaking from authority and he's about to say, listen, God already told us this was going to happen. He's saying, God already told us long ago that this was going to happen. And he quotes Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. He's referencing these Old Testament prophets. Look at what he says. Verse 16. And this is the prophecy that he mentions from the Old Testament. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which had fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So James is basically saying, hey, hey guys, God already told us this is going to happen. It's in the Scriptures. We know. We've got Peter's account. He was in the beginning of it. He saw the Holy Spirit fall down on these guys. We've got Paul and Barnabas saying thousands of people, evidence that this is the right thing. We've got the Old Testament saying it. God has told us it's the right thing to do. We're not going to make them get cut. So he says, we're not going to make him get cut. But, but, he adds something else. He says, so don't cut, but, and he adds a few things. And you think, as I read this, I'm like, why would he add these things? Like, don't do it, but, like, it's, it's a weird situation. And there's a reason why. Look at what he says. So he comes to this conclusion, verse 19. Therefore, it's my judgment 
that we do not trouble those who are turning from, to God from among the Gentiles. So saying, they don't need to get circumcised. That's what he's saying. Verse 20. But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, I sat in my office the other day and I wondered, why? I mean, you know, he dismisses the really big thing, right? Of, okay, guys, you don't got to cut yourselves, but you do need to watch out for these things. I'm like, in my, I'm like, why? And so I'm studying, trying to figure out in my resources, why would he add these things, specifically these things? I mean, he could have added anything he wanted, which was weird to add anything anyway, but he adds these things. He throws out this huge issue, and it almost seems as if he just kind of willy-nilly throws these things in there. But he didn't. He was discussing things that had to do with table fellowship. And what I mean by that is culturally, Jewish believing Christians. So, people that were Jews that became believers in Jesus... Culturally, many of them still practiced the things that they had been brought up to practice. Which were, eat certain things, don't eat certain things, do this, don't do that. These laws that these Pharisees were talking about. On the, in this church, even, we've got people that eat certain things and some of you don't. We've got some people that are vegetarians and some people that are like, more meat the better, right? Well, this was the issue in this church in Antioch. We had people who couldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols, eating at a church fellowship, you know, like we're going to have on Easter. Imagine coming to Easter and half the church is vegetarian and the other half of the church is meat eaters, hunters, and it's like, whoa, right? And you've got this split. The vegetarians over here and the meat eaters over here. You've got the gluten-free people over here, right? And the gluten people, I'm a gluten person, love it, eating over here. And it was caught, these cultural differences were causing dissension, which is how this whole problem came up. Because really in the church in Antioch, they couldn't even eat together because the Jews wouldn't be sitting down with a Gentile who's eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so James, in his wisdom, obviously God ordained, says, listen, you don't need to cut yourself, you don't need to go to that extreme, but what you do need to do is watch out that your freedoms. Don't begin to infringe and cause the other people in the church to stumble. Okay? Because we are free in Christ to eat what we want. But we need to really think about what we eat and do, so that way it doesn't cause someone to sin or to stumble. And so that began to get me to think, okay, so he's saying cut, but you don't cut really. But you may have to cut out some stuff in the way that you act, in the way that you do things, in order to restore fellowship among the people that are just culturally different than you. And we have to do that here. There are a lot of you that speak English only. There are some of you that speak primarily Spanish. So, our verses on the screen are in what? English and Spanish. Our songs are English and Spanish. We have the right to only sing in English or the right to only sing in Spanish. But what do we do? We do both, so that way people, all people, both languages, people that speak both languages, can feel comfortable. 
Now, the reality is, I thought about this, was that our freedom in Christ can sometimes be a stumbling block to people. And this is a, an issue that is addressed in the Scriptures all throughout the New Testament. And we could probably do a whole series on this. It's certainly a whole sermon. I don't have time. I'm looking on the screen. We're already way over. I told you are going to be late anyway, so I'm going to keep going. Um, this is certainly, I'm going to just kind of surface this here, but I want you to think about this for a second. Because this is a good point for us. When my freedom, hear me, when my freedom begins to cause you to stumble, I need to be careful. And this is what James's point was. When the Gentiles' freedom to eat what they wanted to was causing the Jews to stumble, there needs to be some counsel. There needs to be some coming together and figuring out how we're going to deal with this issue. Okay? Just because I have a right to do something doesn't mean that it's what? Right. Just because I have a right to do something doesn't mean that it's right to do it. Do you guys get that? Does that make sense to you? Like, especially in these days, we've got people marching and all these things. Like, just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean that it's necessarily right to do it. And that's what James was getting at here a bit. And Paul begins to talk about these things in the churches, and he starts writing these letters to the churches in Romans and 1 Corinthians. This is kind of what he all breaks it down to. Look at this verse here in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. He says, But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. Now, honestly, this type of thing has to be dealt with in the church all the time. All the time. We need to be careful that our freedoms do not cause others to stumble, to sin, to go back into an addiction or whatever. Um, there, and there's tons of these things. I mean, tons of these things that we could talk about. Alcohol is the perfect one to talk about. It's, it's one that some of you are, for whatever reason, this church has all kinds of addicts. Right? Prior drug addicts, alcoholics, all these people are like drawn here for whatever reason. So you've got a bunch of people that are drug addicts, ex-alcoholics, ex-drug addicts, whatever. Like, and, and we've also got some people here that say you can have a glass of wine or a glass of beer and it's not a big deal to you. It's not a big deal. You can have one, you can have one and go to bed that night and feel fine and no big deal. There's others of you, you have one beer and that turns into what? 15, 20 beers and 15 or 20 years of sobriety down the drain and you lose your job and your family and all of that. It's just reality of who we have here. We have people that have the right to drink. And the people that have the right to drink and shouldn't drink. Right? Just because it's good for you doesn't mean that it's good for someone else. Now think about this for a second. I don't have a problem with alcohol. I can drink one beer or I would never drink a glass of wine if I even was allowed to. I think it's gross, but whatever. I could have an alcoholic drink and, and not have a problem with it at all. But if I'm um, with one of you, I'm not going to point fingers, okay, because I know a lot of you have problem with alcohol and drugs. If I'm with you and I know that you have a problem with alcohol or drugs, what am I doing when I have a drink in front of you? I'm... Causing you to what? Stumble. 
And this is really what James is getting at in the church. He's like, listen, you may have a right to do it, but it doesn't make it right. Think about, this is, this is another example. How many of you have been out to lunch with a friend who's on a diet and you're not? Oh, come on now, right? Yeah, we went the other day, Mars and I went to lunch the other day. He ordered a salad and I ordered a big old burger thing. I don't even know what it was. But listen, this is like when you're out with your friend, and I'm not saying if you're by yourself or with your wife, you shouldn't order the killer cake at the Garden Cafe, right? Because that stuff is legit, right? But imagine being with your best friend who's really trying to cut weight and, you know, is trying to like cut out the sweets and you're having a great conversation, everything's good. And, you know, the waitress is like, can I bring the bill? And you're like, oh, give me the killer cake. And you're just like eating it. Mm, yeah. And your friend is sitting across from you like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, are you that type of person that's like licking the spoon? Because if that's you, you're evil, right? And we all know that. Listen, if you're by yourself or with people that aren't on a diet, get six cakes. I don't even care, right? Like, get it, all of it, because that's what I do. I was, ah, right? I love it. But if you're with someone that's struggling with that thing, whatever that thing is, hold back. So that way you're not making them stumble. We cannot, should not, will not be the reason that someone falls into sin. Okay? We cannot be that. And that's what James is getting at here in this specific topic. Now, this topic keeps coming up. It keeps coming up and Paul has to keep addressing it. Time and time and time again. But let's not let our right become something that we hold higher than we care for our friends. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's not let our freedoms be something that we hold on to so tight that we don't care how they affect the other people around us. If you're with your friends, you want to eat chocolate cake, and they all love chocolate cake, and they're not on a diet, then get after it. But if you're not, then let's watch out. And that's what James is saying to them. Oh my gosh, I don't even know where we're at. Where are we at? Verse, what? 22. Here we go. Then it seemed good, so he makes this decision. James does. Then it seemed good for the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from the brethren. So the Jerusalem council is like, hey, we've made this decision. Now we need to send some guys back to Antioch to be sure that our message is heard. Because we want to make sure that the church at Antioch doesn't just think Paul and Barnabas went in the parking lot of a Circle K and just filled this stuff out and then came on back. You know, they got an Uber back. Like, this didn't happen. This really actually happened up here. So here's the letter. The letter basically... I'm going to kind of skip it because we're already over. The letter basically says you don't need to cut yourselves. But watch out for these three things. Okay, Don't cut yourselves. Those guys that came to your church were not part of us. Don't cut yourselves, but watch out for each other. And here it goes. Verse 30. We'll end here. So when they were sent their way, <coughs> they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of encouragement. Can you imagine the men receiving this letter? Yes! I mean, we're talking joyful encouragement, right? Joyful encouragement. 
And Judas and Silas, all, these are the guys from Jerusalem, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. Today's a lengthy message. Here we go, verse 33. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them. So, uh, Judas and Silas had come down from Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas. And then they go, okay, thanks for the letter. See you later. Well, one of them decides to stay. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. So everything's fixed. It's all good. Everything's great. We're back on the same page. And Silas likes Antioch so much, he decides to stay and eventually becomes Paul's traveling partner and goes on these mission trips and all this stuff. He's a big player in the rest of the New Testament. So, what do we learn? I know we're already over time, but what do we learn from this? What do we learn from Acts chapter 15? I think we learned a few things. Number one, salvation is by grace alone and nothing else. Salvation comes because of grace alone. Meaning the Father in heaven loves you so much that He decided to send His Son to save you. Not because you wore certain underwear or had knew the handshake or did all these cool things or read enough Bible verses or gone to church all your life or any of those things. We are saved by grace alone. By grace alone. You cannot earn salvation. Obedience is not a prerequisite to be saved. I was just talking with this lady at Bernice's house the other day talking about obedience that's just struggling. And I said, listen, obedience, you don't have to obey God before you trust in Him. You trust in Him and then He gives you the Holy Spirit in order to obey Him. A lot of people get the cart before the horse thing. They think, i got to fix up my life before I can come to God. And God's like, no, dude, I'm going to save you and I'm going to fix your life. People get that all mixed up, and I understand why, but it's a horrible, horrible tragedy. God sees the real you and loves you. Number two, the the last thing we'll talk about is this whole thing. Freedom and rights and responsibility. We need to be careful that our freedom isn't going to hurt someone else. We need to be careful that our freedom doesn't hinder someone else's Christian walk. Okay? Okay? So if you're someone with a weaker conscience, you're with someone that can't do the things that you do, then just hold back. And as a believer in Christ, we're called to hold back. In fact, we're called to give up our rights. Just like Jesus did. Look at this verse. He gave up all of His rights. I mean, Jesus had the rights of the universe. Residing in heaven, being worshipped and adored, and He gave up those rights and became a human and died a horrible death that you should have died. He gave up all of His rights so that people could come to Him. We know what real love is. Verse John 3.16 Because Jesus gave up His life for us, so we ought to also give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. We need to do that same thing. When there's one of those instances where like, should I do it? Should I not do it? Who am I with? Think about who you're with. Is this going to help them or hurt them? It's going to hurt them maybe. If there's even a possibility of it hurting them, then just don't do it. Just hold back. God's not saying you can never do that. Just be careful of who you do that with. You need to do that to be good followers of Jesus. That's what He did for us. Now,